0: We're back with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Social media apps were in the news a lot last year, especially after misinformation spread online provided fuel for the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Since then, Facebook and Twitter have been at the forefront of battling misinformation on their platforms about politics, COVID 19, and more. But are they doing enough? And do we expect Congress to regulate the industry anytime soon? To discuss, we are joined by Shannon Bond, technology correspondent for NPR. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Sasha. Also joining us is Tim Wenninger. He's an associate professor of engineering at the University of Notre Dame, where he studies how people consume and curate information. Hi, Professor. Welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. A lot of the misinformation I saw spread last year seemed to focus on politics and the pandemic. Is that the case, Professor?
1: Yeah, that seems to have been um, most of what we're seeing as well. Um, uh, our lab at the University of Notre Dame is is looking at um, the spread uh, of misinformation broadly online um, in the narratives that they contain. Uh, and what we've been seeing a lot recently is um, even a, a year out from the January 6th, um, riots at the Capitol and um, with the pandemic you know, still in full force. Uh, these things are hot button issues that people are discussing. And uh, I'd say, um, to put it generously, um, uh, spreading uh, different perspectives upon.
0: Yeah. Well, how would you characterize where misinformation is most common on the Internet?
1: Uh, most common on the Internet right now uh it's definitely on social media. Um, you think the regular suspects, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, and then you see um, newer uh, websites cropping up. So one of the things that's happening is that as the kind of the, the real popular social media um, applications start to tamp down on this, uh, folks tend to move away from those into more niche places, and so I'm, I'm not going to mention them uh, here on the show. But um, anytime someone wants to seek out information to confirm their deeply held beliefs, their their preconceived notions and biases, they'll find those places. Um, And so it's increasingly becoming more and more balkanized. Mm -hmm. uh, And um, so moving away from the the large players into more niche um, applications and and sites.
0: Before I turn to, to Shannon here, can you clarify for us, Professor, the difference between misinformation and disinformation?
1: yeah and that's a good question that I think is is important to understand when when we talk about misinformation these are things that uh like the the news site or the or the the video or the tweet or the or the image uh, might get wrong on accident It's like oh there were there weren't ten people involved there were twelve and you know that's it's you know, it's it's unintentional there's good intentions at at heart uh but disinformation is the intentional spread of lies, and that's the things that we we kind of stay up at night thinking about and worrying about is there's some narrative that someone or some organization is trying to push, some lie that's trying to be told, um, and that's that's disinformation.
0: Shannon, what have you found to be the, the biggest challenges that social media platforms face against the spread of misinformation?
1: I mean I think a
2: big challenge they have is is defining it, right? So, you know, these for the long time, you know, before the 2020 election, before COVID, you know, what we would hear from these companies over and over again is that they didn't want to be the arbiters of of truth. You know, they wanted people to be able to express their opinions. And they've generally been hesitant to police personal opinion, political opinion. But the problem we're facing now is that, you know, this, and this extends well beyond social media is that we see, you know, in our society, a real fundamental disagreement over basic facts where everything becomes cast as opi- an opinion, whether it's, you know, whether the 2020 election was fair or whether vaccines work, mm-hmm. even though there, of course, is objective reality, you know, that, that, that we should be able to point to. And the problem here is, you know, the companies, I think, have lagged in, you know, they have started to set these policies. They have cracked down on outright lies. Um, but, you know, when things are cast as, you know, I'm just asking questions or this is what I believe, you know, it, 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 can, it can quickly get into a gray area. And I think the other challenge they have is enforcing the rules they do set. I mean, we see, you know, Facebook and Twitter, for example, you know, have over the past year developed, you know, more aggressive policies about, about COVID, about vaccines, about the claims you can make, um, but they're not necessarily good at actually enforcing them, taking down posts or accounts that, that break their rules. So
0: who is it that's making the call about what we can and can't say on the Internet? What role are tech leaders playing?
2: I mean ultimately it it does come down to these tech leaders right I mean these are these are companies that are setting rules they they get to set the rules they want to set and so you know it's people like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or until recently Jack Dorsey at Twitter um you know who are ultimately responsible and they have made clear they are uncomfortable with this role now you know if you speak to users and and frankly employees of these companies they see a responsibility you know for leadership about what happens on these platforms But I think when you get into the details, it gets very messy, right? I mean, we hear Republicans arguing that, you know, taking down false claims about the election is is a form of bias. Uh, You know, Facebook employees themselves have complained the company can seem to bend over backwards to avoid angering conservatives. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the idea that these unelected corporate executives are making these calls. But we kind of don't have anybody else to be making these calls, right? Mm-hmm. There's not like a government department of internet speech uh, and that wouldn't be constitutional anyway. So, you know, I think we're un- we're in a very uncomfortable situation where we don't really know who we want to be making these decisions, but we're not happy
1: with the status quo.
0: Professor Wenninger, can you nail down a few big reasons why people spread misinformation?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. I-, I would say that most of the spread of misinformation, this is getting um, to-, to Shannon's point earlier, uh, is-, is something that, the social media companies have a hard time grappling with them, and they don't want to uh, because it's to, to, that puts them into a tough spot of having to please you know, two different constituencies at the same time. Um, but so one of the things that we see a lot is that most of the disinformation and misinformation that gets spread online is spread by well-meaning, just regular individuals. Um, and So actually a lot of the study that we do at Notre Dame is, is based upon how that actually happens. One of the things that we find is that the vast majority – of the the things that you share on twitter and on facebook and, and on instagram and so on occur without the user who's who's sharing it actually reading it mm-hmm. so on twitter for example 75 percent of all retweets occur without the user ever clicking the link right they, that's they why the they headline, started i the... suppose and then
0: yeah, that's why they started the, uh, the automatic pop-ups, if you recall, uh, sort of asking you before you shared something or retweeted or shared it on Instagram. Like, Are you sure you want to share this? You haven't exactly. read it. Exactly.
1: And, and, and that's actually a wonderful um, thing that, that Twitter has started doing. It's, it's encouraging people to slow down and think before and not just, just have that instinctual reaction. Um which is a big part of the media literacy pushing that a lot of uh, companies are trying to, to work on um, and but the same thing is true on uh, you know facebook and and reddit and Instagram that don't have that kind of built into the system pause and reflect um, that that's one kind of just user interface thing, a small mm-hmm. thing that companies can do um, to help tamp down on the spread of disinformation because most of it is just by us, yeah. regular, well-meaning individuals.
0: And to that end, a lot of these posts that we see that could be misinformation, oftentimes they're very passionate, they're like an appeal to, to emotion over logic. Is that sort of a go-to tactic?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've, we've known for a century now, just if you just study marketing and business practices, is that emotion is a main driver of action Uh, we we all like to think ourselves as as logical humans that um, are rational uh, but we all um, fall victim to emotional poise and emotional cries for one thing or the other Um, it's certainly true and it has been for a long time that emotion uh, drives reaction and views and retweets and therefore spreads more widely
0: Shannon, do you think that uh, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen changed the conversation at all about how we approach fighting misinformation online?
2: I I think she has had an impact. I mean, I I think this is sort of most clearly in what you're hearing, some of the discussions coming out of Washington, right, coming out in Congress, where you're starting to see some lawmakers focus more on the architecture of the platforms, the design choices like the professor is talking about, um, which, you know, less less about. You know, what are they are Are they taking down a particular post or claim or video? You know, less about the content and more about how might the design of, of Facebook, for example, encourage you to share things? You know, that you know, show you things that they that are you know emotionally heightened, but that also may be more likely to be untrue. Um, you know, and then amplify them. And so, I think there's many more questions being asked now about know what responsibility they bear not for the content their users are posting but for how their systems might be amplifying that content and so you know there's pushes to kind of open up what they what they refer to as these black boxes of algorithms mm-hmm. you know there's skepticism over the data that the companies themselves share so there's a push you know to to give more access to outside researchers i mean facebook used to do that. They've really backed away from it. Researchers tell me they've become a lot harder to work with them. So there's a, there's a legislative proposal right now in Congress that would require companies to give access to outside researchers and not limit what they can study.
0: Yeah. So do you think that there'll be more talk to do that, to, to require third party research groups to sift through the data?
2: That does seem to be sort of an area that I think could get bipartisan support. I mean, if we think Congress can get anything done, which is, of course, you know, a very open question. Um, but I think that is something, you know, again, it's not sort of tied to sort of your your political biases about about the content itself. It's more about, you know, look, you know, we need transparency, we need to understand what is happening. These are very powerful platforms and we want to be able to sort of see inside them a little bit better. So, you know, I think there there could be movement there. And, you know, folks that I talked to say, you know, that would be a good first step because it would also allow more informed you know, for, if you wanted to make further laws, it would you know, give us a kind a of more common basis to understand what is actually happening on these platforms.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with NPR technology correspondent Shannon Bond and Notre Dame associate professor Tim Wenninger over the continued role that social media is playing in the spread of misinformation. Coming up in about five minutes on Reset, what you need to know about the weather forecast as we head into the weekend. So stay tuned for that conversation. Uh, Professor Meta is one tech giant we know that hosts multiple social media platforms, right? Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. Uh, but regulatory bodies like the the FTC, they're trying to break them up. Why is that?
1: Yeah, and that's a, another great question. If, if you think about it, it's the same reason that you would want to break up any kind of um, corporation that, that controls a, a lot of uh, what people use and uh, the choices available. Uh, in this particular case... Um, a lot, of, a lot of times, what we see is um, young people, especially, they get fed up with Facebook and say, "I'm not going to go with Facebook anymore. Um, I'm going to switch to Instagram," not knowing that that's the same company, that that's, that's the same, right? Um, and the same technology is happening. And if you were to, in the same thing, okay, well, this Instagram is no good. I'm going to go to WhatsApp instead, not knowing that WhatsApp is also owned by the same the same company. Uh, and so, if there are choices for, and that's how basically a lot of social media works is that if if there are choices um, available to you, um, then uh, you should be able to switch um, to a different platform and get something, uh, a different experience uh, from a different company. Uh, And so if you want to try to provide that variety in a healthy market, um, then we need to make sure that it's not a single monopoly controlling all of the information.
0: Shannon, do you think that splitting up big tech could make it easier to control the spread of misinformation?
2: I mean, there's certainly an argument for that in this idea that if you had more competition, and if you had kind of real alternatives to, to, to Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, one of the things they would these companies would have to compete on would be sort of their, you know, their rules and and people could sort of seek out you know platforms that you know that, that that where they felt they were getting you know what what they what they're looking for um and and the idea that it also wouldn't be so concentrated you sort of wouldn't have so you know, we wouldn't feel that any one platform had just had so much sway over what seems to be happening you know politically socially but there is also skepticism of this claim right i mean facebook whistleblower francis haugen has argued that breaking up facebook could actually you know, make it harder to police some of this content because, you know, it's so powerful. It's so large. It makes so much money in advertising. If you sort of sucked away some of that advertising money, it wouldn't be able to spend the money it needs to police its platform. Um, So, but I think, you know, generally there is just a lot of skepticism, you know, in Washington over the power of these companies and this growing sense that, you know, there does need to be sort of more competition regulated in order to to address some of these issues.
0: Well, Professor, we we saw huge amounts of misinformation, as we've mentioned, in the the last election. We're going into another election year. This time it's the midterms. Are platforms ready to handle those kinds of posts this time?
1: Uh, Certainly not. Um, This is, (laughs) in in a a word, no. That's promising. (laughs) Um, But uh, one of the things that I am hopeful about is just... um, the general population, the people I talk to, uh, students here at Notre Dame and elsewhere, uh, the thing that gives me hope is that people are kind of understanding this more. Like they they get it. They they see that okay, this post um, that my aunt or uncle or friend shared it might might not be true. It might be some kind of motivated political thing. And people are kind of waking up to the fact that not everything you see online is um, is true or factual or accurate. And that kind of just general literacy over how misinformation spreads, the more we talk about it and the more we kind of get our hand, hand, um, our heads around it, uh, the more hope I have. And so people, I think, just generally – so if, if the Facebook and YouTube and Twitter aren't able – up to the task, I'm hopeful that the people yeah. and are up to the task themselves. I, it, I often say that misinformation is is as much a technical problem as it is a problem of values. That, do we, as a population, as a society, do we value truth and accuracy? And if you say you do, show me. Show me by what you share and like and comment on social media.
0: To that end, Shannon, leave us with some markers that we should know that signal that we need to take a closer look or or to double check what a social media post says.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the the most basic is, you know, where is it coming from? Where is this information coming from? Is there a verifiable source? Can you go to that source and read it? Um, And then, you know, our are you able to corroborate it elsewhere? You know, is this, is this something that's just sort of been reshared down a chain of people or is it by somebody you sort of know and trust that seems to be a, from an originally newsworthy source and you should diversify our sources of information. You know, I mean, if you're only getting news from your Facebook feed, you know, you know, are, are you seeking out other ways of, of, finding out the news are you reading newspapers are you listening to the radio are you you checking out other websites Mm -hmm. i think a lot of it is just about applying some basic skepticism about you know where the information you're consuming is coming from um, and who might be motivated to share it and why
0: shannon bond is a technology correspondent for npr and tim wenninger is an associate professor of engineering at the university of notre dame thank you both